Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. And like you, we are totally amazed that we managed to go two weeks in a row with the show. I know. Everyone is going to be so excited to hear that we're back. Now, one thing I do need to mention is um, we're still trying to sort out the buzz hum that we had last week, and I think we still have this week. What we think is going on is it's probably the same phenomenon in our town that causes the crappy water is also creating crappy power. Okay, but our water comes from a deep artisanal well. Doesn't our power come from a deep artisanal well? I don't think our power comes from a deep artisanal well. Somewhere deep within the earth where there's apparently lots of minerals? Yeah, no. I don't think that it works that way. Okay. All right. I'm 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 blaming the town because we did not this is the exact same setup with the exception of an actual computer monitor. Then it's the monitor. Well, actually the, the two changes. I I have a different computer monitor and a different mouse. Okay. Well, obviously it's one of those two things. Oh, and a different desk. We have a different desk. It's definitely one of those three things. <laughs> <laughs> Any other changes you wish to talk about? I mean, keep in I mean, mind... other than location. Well, yeah, we're 400 miles due west of where we used to be, and we are now recording in a non-carpeted room. I mean, there's all sorts of different changes. Yeah, but I think we've proven from the testing that we've done this week... The small amount of testing. And, and limited internet research. Don't forget that. Yes, limited internet research. I, I think we have confirmed that between the two... Um, that we know it's not the room or the desk. I think we also confirmed it was not the mics. Yeah, we did that too. All right. Um, now that we have bored our last actual listener, sorry, Phil, bye. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're just staying true to form. Unplanned, unrehearsed, and without decent content? Hey, um, since you listened to them this week, and I have not yet, now that we are back, did the Five Live podcast manage to stay on course throughout a whole show, or did they veer off? Unfortunately, I don't think that we have taken that hit for them quite enough, because they took a few left turns, mostly while making fun of Jolian Palmer this week. Well, they're, they're, okay, I, I can't knock them for making fun of Jolian Palmer. He, he gives them a good target to mess with. Uh, a very giant target. <laughs> like, here I am dancing in front of you and being a target. <laughs> kind of target it's it's impressive but um no actually one of the most important things that came out of the five live um podcast is something i'm assuming that we're going to talk about with the battle um the penalty the in, controversy in of, and of the that. yes so why don't you start talking about it and see if you happen to cover the little tidbit that i found out today in five five okay um so we didn't really talk about, well, we didn't at all talk about the Because apparently I ended the show early last you week. You did. <laughs> I did have more to talk about, and somebody decided that they were done. Hey. In case you missed that. <laughs> when you're done, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> Had planned on doing a little bit more than bitching about uh, the FIA, but there, or not the FIA, Formula One Management, but there you go. I had enough. I was done. So... There was the race of two weeks ago, and the off and penalty and massive... What lost Vettel his race? Yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. The, the, the off that totally lost Seb his race, and the question as to whether or not there should have been a penalty. And I will freely admit that when I first watched it and saw everything going on and how, every, how it all went down, and I'm like... Yeah, it was legitimate. There, there's nowhere else for Seb to go. It, you know, he, he was fighting to bring the car under control. There was nowhere else for him to go. That's that that's what he had to do. I mean, there was no other options there. Um, and I believe I even mocked Nico Rosberg for initially being one of the first ones to come out and say that penalty was 100% deserved. <laughs> Pretty sure I mocked Nico. You mock Nico any chance that you get. Well, not every chance, but... Yeah, um, all the chances. 
Now, as I have seen more of the videos, as I have heard more of the commentary, even from Jolian Palmer, mm-hmm. I kind of understand where they were coming from. Um, and, why, and, and especially seeing the video, um, and it was actually in, in the immediate post-race that uh, the Sky coverage had on ESPN that showed that when Seb had rejoined the track and, and it got to the point where, where they were questioning the actions, he wasn't steering the car anymore. Correct. He was going straight. Right. Which at that point seems to indicate that he actually did have control of the car. Mm-hmm. And at that point, maybe it was an avoidable situation. Well, here's the thing. Jolie and Palmer came out very much in favor of said uh, he did. And the reason, and he explained it very well on the Five Live podcast, mm-hmm. so I will explain it. I will paraphrase his explanation. Um, but he explained that we get caught up in the, he went off, he crossed over, and then Hamilton had to break to avoid the collision. Mm-hmm. He says, what you actually need to think about is what would have happened had they collided. Who would have gotten blamed for the collision? Because that's where okay. the penalty lays. And it was, I have to give Jolian pretty much pretty good props for thinking, you know, laying that out. Because had Hamilton not come off the, come off the gas and put on the brakes, he would have run into the back to the side of Seb. Mm-hmm. Likely, Hamilton would not have received a penalty for that, but Seb most certainly would have. Now, they both would have ended up in the wall, and it yeah. would have ended both of their races. So when the, the stewards have to look at the incident, they have to consider it from actually both sides of the scenario. What actually happened and what would have happened had the next logical thing happened. So the, this idea of had Hamilton not braked and kept the line, he clearly had. Mm-hmm. Vettel would have gotten that penalty, which meant Vettel was in the wrong spot. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. However, now, are you going to go through what Ferrari did? I, I was about to. Are you well, ready I'm gonna, for that? I'm, okay. I'm kicking it back to you so, to explain Ferrari's dance of champions. So, you know, the, the initial question was, would Ferrari try and appeal the penalty, which technically they can't do. And they came out and they confirmed it. No, we are not going to appeal the penalty. What they did push for was they pushed for a review. A right to review. They have a a right to review. They pushed for that. And they stated that they had, quote, pretty overwhelming evidence um, to present to the stewards. And they felt that with the presentation of this pretty overwhelming evidence that the penalty would get overturned. Okay. So I want you to pause for a second. Okay. Because in order to institute this right to review, Mm -hmm. you have to have new and compelling evidence. Correct. So the question that Jolien posed. And I I have what I was going to get there, so don't lose. I'm not going to. Don't don't steal my thunder. I'm not taking your thunder. Okay. But Jolien's question was, what could they possibly have? that the stewards don't have because they have all the telemetry mm-hmm. at the time. Everybody has that. And everybody has all of the video of this this thing that happened. So what did Ferrari use as their new and compelling evidence? Well, before I even get to that, let me explain who the group was that they were bringing their right to review with and what this... So it was the stewards from the Canadian Grand Prix who were involved in this. They convened at Circuit Paul Ricard on Friday, um, with the exception of one who joined via teleconference. Um, And they decided, and I'll tell you why in a second, but they decided that there are no significant and relevant new elements which were unavailable to the parties at the time of competition concern and as a result would not review. So what was it? Ferrari brought seven items as evidence. Yes. So five of those seven items were what the stewards from the Canadian Grand Prix uh, determined were, quote, available before the end of the competition, Mm -hmm. which meant that the stewards had review of them. The other two items, and and I'm... 
doing this backwards from the article I'm looking at deliberately, was a video from the camera facing uh, Vettel and released by F1 after the race. That was considered new but not significant and relevant because the evidence contained in this video footage can be seen within other available video. The last piece of overwhelming evidence that they brought forward was a video analyst analysis performed by Karun Chandok for Sky Sports um, and they deemed that that was new but not significant and relevant as this is a personal opinion by a third party. And I kind of agree because as much as we we have sung the praises of Karun Chandok's <laughs> technical analysis, he, is, he has really been spot on with this. I don't think you really can use a journalist's analysis of your event as your aha moment. Yeah. Okay, so I, I we need to really, really dig deep into this one. Because Ferrari, arguably the greatest brand in motorsport, the okay. one that has been around since the dawn of sporting in motors. I believe ninety year that that's the ninety year anniversary that's on everybody's jumpsuit. So sure. they've been around for a while. This is the same team that has all of the money, all of the money, and the best that they can bring to a review session of a penalty from two weeks ago is the VHS video of, <laughs> of Grandoc. I mean, let's just let's just like absorb that for a minute. I loved Jolien's reaction to this because he felt that Ferrari should also bring his analysis to the stewards because he was in favor of the penalty as, you know, contrary evidence. And he said that he respected the, the analysis from Sky. He got it. But, you know, if they were going to use that, then maybe Jolien's response should be, you know, that might be Mercedes right to review response like who's gonna bring a news guy's theory it's like taking the opt-ed piece and making it fact you know I, I could really see um for those of you who grew up in the new york area and remember uh cbs sportscaster warner wolf and his his line that he used to use in every broadcast of let's go to the videotape yeah. For every replay, I, I could see Matteo Bonotto screaming that in Italian. Let's go to the videotape. Uh, and yeah. everyone in the room going, um, no. <laughs> it's, it's just that overwhelming feeling of this was your A game. So I have a theory. Okay. I believe that Ferrari only did the right to review to appease Seb's ego. I think not fully. Uh, to some extent, I think, yeah, it was to make sure that Seb felt that they were looking out for him. Um, and, and my understanding is during the week he gave an interview where he stuck to the, I did what I had to do, and th this wasn't blocking, this wasn't anything else. But I think to some extent, Ferrari was hoping that the, the public opinion and the outcry that happened over this penalty, because everybody felt like they were robbed coming out of there. I mean, really, I th everybody felt like they were robbed from this incident. They were truly hoping that that would be the sway and that after uh, two weeks of the frustration and the anger and everything that the FIA and the marshals would cave to public opinion. Okay, so I just am going to throw this out there. And, I can and, open and up I'm the book, but and, I will... I, mm -hmm. I can open up the book, but have, have we ever had an incident where the marshals have reversed a decision based on public opinion? I don't think so. Um, but, you know, obviously that didn't stop Ferrari from going to like petitions.moveon.org or, or change.org and going, here's our stack of 8 million signatures. You should do this. 
I know. I know. But again, just like let's go to the videotape, <laughs> let's yeah. try to get Karun to, to defend our position here. Um, just like that, I have to ask again, what were your chances of really making that work? Oh, look, there's fans out there that are ticked off. You should change your mind about the fact that our driver nearly ran off this other driver off the track. I, I could see that there, there, that was the logic there. It w and, and to some extent, again, it wouldn't have surprised me that there were phone calls going, you know, it, the only chance that you have to stop Mercedes and Lewis from running away with the season is right here. You have to do something. And that there were calls to Jean Todd and others in the FIA saying, you're about to lose control of the season if you don't do something. So I, that, that's what I think some degree of that logic was. Well, all I'm going to say is that truth won out and Lewis gets to maintain his win of the Canadian Grand Prix. Okay. Now, I think everybody, including Lewis, would have agreed that what would have been the best end was had Lewis been able to just go on and pass Seb and then the five-second penalty would not have mattered. Well, not just that, but if they had just turned around... And, and I get that the way the rules were written, they had to do it. But if they had stepped back and said, it's a racing incident, they would have continued to fight. Lewis continue, would, have, would have continued to try to pass Seb, and that race would have ended a whole lot differently. And, and when I say it would have ended a whole lot differently, I mean because of the fact that once that penalty came down, they stopped fighting. No, they actually, that is incorrect. It sure looked like it. No, because Lewis was still pushing because Lewis was trying to pass Seb so that this controversy could just go away. That Here's the thing. If Lewis passed Seb, those five seconds didn't matter. True. Well. And, no, because it wouldn't have pushed him back, into, pushed back. Okay. into Botas or whoever was third. Um, Leclerc. Leclerc. It wouldn't have pushed him back there. So. Lewis was passing, and it was after the five seconds that got applied that Lewis was so close to passing Seb, and I think he had a little lockup or something. But you're right, it was Botas. Um, but that was what was happening towards the end. So yes, if Lewis had been able to pass Vettel, it would have solved a lot of this controversy. But. But I don't know if it's lines, truly a racing incident. Mercedes didn't need to push anymore at that point. No, they didn't. But they didn't. They didn't tell Lewis they to didn't turn tell down him to back the engine. Off, but yeah, yeah. So I don't think Seb let the incident just ruin his, his two weeks off that much. Well, didn't you hear the wedding bells? That's true. Uh, between leaving the Canadian Grand Prix and turning up at Paul Ricard, Sebastian Vettel married his high school sweetheart, Hannah Prater. You're impressed. We actually know who he married. We don't know the name of his kids. We don't know whether he's got a boy or a girl or two girls or two boys or what. We don't know how that many means. kids he has. No, they, they, they have two kids together already. He's already knocked her up twice. Now he's decided to marry her. What? He thinks it's going to last now? Maybe. Uh, but they had, unsurprisingly, a private ceremony. Um, they, they've been living together for years. Get this one. I didn't even know that Sebastian Vettel was living in Switzerland. <laughs> we thought he was still living in Germany. The man's a very private man. He is. He's a mystery wrapped in an enigma. But now he's a married mystery wrapped in an enigma. To his high school sweetheart. Is that kind of a mystery wrapped in an enigma? Is that kind of like a burrito? It's a burrito of puzzlement. Okay. <laughs> I think you just found the name for this episode. Hey, so <clears throat> unshockingly, the other little tidbit that we got this week, and I'm sure nobody is surprised by this. So Kimi Raikkonen has a tendency 
um, when he's at the track, even when he's like getting on the truck for the driver's parade and, and that little drive around there, he puts his headphones on. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked him, well, Kimmy, what are you listening to? Well, he said that, you know, to s- sometimes he's listening to Finnish rock music because that, that's what he's into, which no surprise, he's being Finnish. But most of the time, he's not listening to anything. He just doesn't want to talk to anybody. Got it. <laughs> so, yeah, nobody's really surprised that, that Kimmy does this, but Kimmy admitted this this week to Alfa Romeo. Good to know. Yeah. So... Because we haven't had enough controversy about rules and things like that, in the run-up to this week's race, and you'll see why this matters in a moment, the FIA issued strict track limits instructions to the drivers for the ramp-up to the French Grand Prix. Because, you know, Circuit Paul Ricard is a bunch of white lines in the middle of a supermarket parking lot. Yeah, basically an autocrat. That's what it feels like, because it is just... A massive expanse of pavement. Yep. That goes on and on and on. There's no gravel traps. As a result of it, very strict instructions about how drivers had to return to the track and where and all of that stuff. Right. So I'm I'm not going to go through all of that because we're past the race at this point. It doesn't make sense to review what they're supposed to do. But just know that they put down the rules here and we saw in what was it lap one Sergio Perez going off the track and um, following the designated path to follow to get back on the track going around the bollards at turn three and still getting a penalty for leaving the track and gaining an advantage he got a five second penalty not only a five second penalty but he got point he got another point on his license for this oh my so let, let's look at this okay okay you have sebastian vettel who loses control of the car pulls it back in and yes found to be um he would have been at fault if he got into an incident for returning to the track in an unsafe manner correct and argues that there was nothing else for him to do now you have sergio perez who goes off the track follows the prescribed path to return to the track the one that was supposed to penalize him for going off the track the one that was to make it harder and not gain an advantage and he gets a penalty Five-second penalty and a point on his license. See, I argue that the point on his license is incorrect. However, the fact that nobody timed it to figure out that going off the track there and following the you know prescribed, you screwed up mm-hmm. path was still faster than going around properly. Yeah, I, I, I got problems with that. Now, what the ruling was that came down, I'll... I'll, I'll read it to you so that you understand where they're coming from although Perez followed the procedure in the race director's notes he clearly gained positions when he rejoined the track at turn 5 and retained this advantage the stewards reviewed whether Perez was forced off and determined that this was not the case gaining an advantage is a breach of the regulations and of the race director's director's instructions which states that even if you follow the procedure you may only rejoin the track without gaining a lasting advantage okay so what they're saying is that if you end up going off the track you it is the driver's responsibility to slow down enough and be mindful not only to make sure that they are rejoining the track following the the um directed process but they're also paying attention to all of the other drivers oh wait i was behind those guys i need to make sure i stay behind those guys you say that like it's a bad thing well considering it probably took me longer to state all of that than the actual process would take i think that's part of the issue okay so i have a proposed solution don't go back to paul ricard there you go Problem solved. <laughs> yeah. You know, we expect last year when we when Formula One went to Paul Ricard, and, and I admit, 
I believe very strongly that there should be a French Grand Prix. It deserves to be on the calendar. But Power Card's obviously not the right place. Yeah. It's not the right track. And I think that's something that really Formula One needs to take a good look at when they're looking at venues. And it shouldn't just be a matter of, you know, are they going to pay us the money to host the event? But and, and is the track grade one certified? But is it a layout that is conducive to racing and to good racing? And does it really make sense to take a, tra- a facility that has been optimized to be a test track and use it for ra- Even though, yes, it's capable of hosting it, does that truly make sense? Well, I mean, somebody's going to have to talk about the fact that there's not good racing that happens this weekend. That, and I think maybe the other criteria should be, does Bernie Eccleston own a stake in the facility? Well, I think that's what should be an elimination point. And the problem was when Paul Ricard, when they signed that contract, Bernie was still running the series. Yeah, so he was buying himself Uh his retirement package. Yeah. I know. So we have the penalty that happened for... Sergio Perez, Daniel Ricardo got not one, but two five-second penalties for the action at the end of the race around Lando Norris. Ugh. Yeah. Because um, when he overtook Lando, he locked up, um, which caused Norris to take evasive action. So that was one. Um, and then the other was allowing... Um, was when he tried to repass Kimi Raikkonen because he and that one that one I kind of understand okay he was off four off the track yeah and to some extent yeah that was pushing it but this is where we all and, and, and I'm of two minds here because on one hand yes I, I agree the limits of play are the white lines mm-hmm. and when you go outside of the white line you're outside the limits of play. But we also like it when drivers push the envelope a little bit, push the edge a little bit. And we have seen some fantastic passes by drivers who are hanging it off the edge. Mm-hmm. And this was an area that it was safe for him to do that. That's why I I'm understand. like, I'm, I'm of two minds here. You know, if you don't want the drivers to do this, Maybe you shouldn't have three miles of runoff for them to go and play in. What did Martin Brundle say? There was 800 miles of <laughs> runoff at Paul Ricard. Ridiculous. And, and, that's, and this was a narrower part of the track, and there was still plenty of room for him to go and pull these moves. But, okay, I go, but you have to compare it to other sports. If the ball hits outside the white line in tennis, it's out. Yeah, if it lands outside the foul line or on the foul line in baseball, it's a foul ball. Mm-hmm. If it hits the fan down the foul line, it's a foul ball. But if it bounces off the player and goes out, it's still It's fair. still fair. So the lesson there is always aim for the pitcher. Well, no, because, it, no, you want to aim for the third baseman. <laughs> He's the one who stands on the foul line, not the pitcher. Pitcher's in the middle. I understand that. If, if, you but the pitcher, to, if you manage to nail the pitcher and it goes foul, <laughs> A, the pitcher's probably going to be like in a bajillion pieces. It's going to be kind of gross. And B, that's one hell of a shot. I didn't think we were still going for and it goes. I thought we were beyond the and it goes foul. <laughs> I was going for the, you aim for the pitcher because he's the worst catcher we have on the team. Oh, is that it? Yes. Okay. Anyway, back to this. Yeah, let's stay with the one sport I understand. So, in the first incident, Daniel Ricciardo was judged to have left the circuit and rejoined unsafely, forcing another driver off the track. Um, In their statement explaining the decision, the steward said Ricciardo started to pass Norris on the outside at turn eight. At the exit of the corner, he distinctly left the track, and the stewards determined that he rejoined at an angle that forced Norris off the track to avoid the collision. 
The stewards accepted Ricardo's explanation that when he was rejoining the track, he had slowed considerably, going down extra gears and locking up the front left tire. He also stated that the rumble strips in the turn made the car more difficult to control. However, the stewards considered that the sequence of events constituted rejoining a track unsafely, and he subsequently took the position from Norris. And then he was deemed to have left the track and gained a, a lasting advantage passing another car while getting ahead of Raikkonen. Following the incident at turn 8 with Norris, Raikkonen managed to pass both Norris and Ricardo. Ricardo, who by then had regained control of his car, then chased Raikkonen from turn 9 and subsequently passed Raikkonen. Raikkonen defended his position on the straight, moving slightly to the right. However, Raikkonen never put any of his car off the track, and he did not make any move to the right while any part of Ricardo's car was alongside, and did not crowd Ricardo off the track. To make the pass, Ricardo drove off the track, and then subsequently completed the pass, gaining a lasting advantage. The stewards reviewed the case to see if there was a continuance of the previous incident. However, Ricardo had clearly regained control of the car following his incident with Norris, and the pass off the track was a separate incident. Okay. So unfortunately for Daniel, that moves Raikkonen up to seventh ahead of Nico Hulkenberg, who also got ahead of Norris exiting the, ch the chicane, and Norris. Red Bull's Pierre Gasly inherited the final point in tenth. And I don't know about the... the the issue with Norris. I don't think we really saw... Well, we did, but it was kind of quick. The one that I thought was blatant, and I think it was right that they did it, as much as, yeah, I kind of want to see drivers pushing it, was that pass on Raikkonen. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was clearly all four off, and not just all four off, but on a normal track, mm -hmm. probably would have had two wheels in the grass. Yeah. That's kind of pushing it. I agree with you. <clears throat> But the problem isn't the drivers. It's Paul Ricard. Yes. I agree with you. Go testing it, Paul Ricard. Use, you, and maybe that's the answer. Is use Paul Ricard for testing, not Barcelona. That would be another option. And to go with that, because of the flexible nature of... I mean, that is why it's such a great test track. Is it is so flexible with all of the things that they can do. There's sprinklers on it. There's about 1,500 different layouts that they can use. Is maybe day one of testing is race, you, you know, you have one area, one day that it's the full circuit that, that's long as possible for high speed, and then another day is, is wet weather testing, and another day is all slow speed turns or something like that. They could give the teams a well-rounded series of, uh, of things that they could test on as opposed to we're going to Barcelona to run the same track over and over and over and over and over and over again. Okay. I see where you're going, but you have failed to understand one key thing. Given the opportunity, Formula One and the FIA are going to screw it up? Not the thing I was thinking of, oh. but while true. Okay. Testing is not at all for the benefit of the teams. Okay. If they were for the benefit of the teams, we would have testing so that they could have all of those different options. They would be pushing for different scenarios and different things like that. Testing is about photo ops at this point in the racing. What do you mean by... you? this point or you mean this point in the season or? no this point in the history of racing at some point when we actually could test and actually do real testing and in-season testing and all of those types of things these were important things that were going on but now we do it all behind the scenes with maths and honestly i'm not entirely sure that the teams get a whole lot out of their testing period of time at barcelona I, they do um, and I don't think it's about photo ops. I, I, I disagree there because the teams get the time to run that. Um, they, they get 100 miles that they can run. And, and the teams have been using that to run in their cars. Some of the teams have been using that to run in their cars um, preseason. 
there is stuff that they get from testing. They're testing the wings. They are actually testing aerodynamics. Or in the case of Williams and previous years, McLaren realizing that, yep, we missed the boat again. Okay, so I but, might but, be overly dramatic, but I honestly I think don't we, think that they would ever think about doing something as I think intensive we, as what you just described. Yeah, probably not. But I, I think where your point is valid is the fact that by the time that they get to, to winter testing, there's relatively minor modifications that are being made. And if a team finds out, like Williams and McLaren have in the past, that they have totally got it wrong, mm -hmm. they're so far down the path already that there is no real recovery. They can try and make things better, but if they're wrong, they're out of luck. You're not, you're not coming up with a new chassis and a new aerodynamics concept after week one of testing. Exactly. And, and that's that's where I think you have a valid point. Um, but there are things that, I mean, again, look at what happened in testing this year. Everybody thought that Ferrari had it and Mercedes was screwed coming in. And Mercedes came out of those two weeks of testing, and they fixed the problems, and they're walking away with a season. Better than anybody else thought they would. They're walking away with a season with a car that last year that they said was, was a diva, and this year they say is even trickier than last year's car. Figure that one out. I think Lewis said this year's car was a princess. I hadn't heard that. But I, I had heard the team say that the, it was trickier to get this car right than last year's car. And last year they called that car a diva because they had such problems getting it right. Oh, yeah. So speaking of Lewis. So Lewis um, has, I guess it, it was addressed to him after coming out of a really dominant win this weekend. Mm -hmm. Um is, is he concerned that things are starting to get boring? You know, that, that we, at this point, you, you've got a pretty good chance of just guessing that Mercedes is going to win and it's going to be either Lewis or Valtteri. Probably at this point, the way things are shaping out, a stronger chance that it's going to be Lewis, but Valtteri's still hanging in there and still has a chance to, to come in and have a strong weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, is he concerned about and Lewis has actually said that, you know, yes and no. Yes, he's, he's got the concerns about it, about it getting boring, but he also points out that it's not the driver's faults. Yeah. You know, the, the drivers are going out there, and they're driving as hard as they can, and they're doing the best that they can. But, again, if you look at the rulings that have come down this weekend, you look at what happened out in Montreal – there may be an issue with the rules and it's not even a matter of this is the marshal's fault of they're enforcing stuff that they shouldn't be or something like that it's the that's the rule book they've been handed yeah and to to lewis's point and, and slightly off of that if you recall going in and we didn't talk about it obviously because we weren't recording but one of the things that they had said going into this season was that the stewards were going to start taking a more lax approach to the interpretation of the rules and where possible wanted to let the drivers race mm -hmm. that's what they said going into this season especially after last weekend i'm not sure that's the case well, we saw it early in the season. And we keep did. In, keep in mind, the stewards aren't the same stewards all the way through the season. Mm -hmm. So where we had a few things that might have garnered penalties in the past, they were allowed to race and it wasn't the same early in the season, the set of stewards that they had for Canada and the stewards that we had subsequently for France are taking a harder line. The question becomes, who's giving them their marching orders since we don't have Charlie? Yeah, and, and that may be some of it there, is that we're seeing the, the loss of Charlie Whiting mm -hmm. and how they work. That's I, I don't know. Um, 
one of the things that actually I was going, I got an email because I haven't been up on the F1 fan portal in a while <clears throat> and got asked to come in and, and participate in a couple of surveys. One of the questions in one of the surveys that they had me uh, take today, they asked me to take today, was on the marshalling system and whether or not um, I agreed with this the way marshalling was going, that every race had a different set of marshals, or maybe it should just be a pool of three groups of marshals going to all the races, or a steady, consistent marshalling squad that went to every single race. What did you vote for? I voted that they need to have a steady, consistent marshalling squad for every single race. So what I think they should do is because I think it becomes onerous to have to expect a marshal to go to 21 races. Charlie Whiting did. The race director did. Charlie was a special human being. He was. Um, But, and I'm sure that because Charlie did a lot more than just, you know, direct the races, I'm quite sure that he was also compensated very well for his time. Well, yeah. And I don't know what... Yeah, they were, you know, these guys were comfortable. And I'm not sure how marshals are paid, but what I would like to see is either a core group of rotating marshals, not like uh, three marshals take seven of the races and the next three marshals take the next seven races, Um, but that maybe there's nine marshals and then but they get shuffled and there's overlap there's overlap Be- because that's not the that's same that's the three. biggest challenge i think is that and and, and we, we've talked about this for years and, and everybody's talked about this who watches everything that goes on in, in formula one is that there is no consistency now it's gotten better mm-hmm. it, it when we first started watching formula one in 2012 um, and even before then, the way that system used... Or not the marshals, the stewards. Stewards. We should get that right. The marshals are the guys who clean up the mess when there's an accident and wave the flags. It's the stewards. Um, but the race stewards, um, 2012 and earlier, and it may have even switched before then, um, The folk, it was a different bunch of stewards every race, and they may not necessarily be race drivers. Right. The stewards were having the role of a steward was one of the gifts that Bernie Eccleston used to hand out to the local automobile associations in the countries for every one of the races are held. Mm-hmm. So it could be the, the the president and two or three executive folks from the automotive association who have absolutely no experience in racing and motorsports whatsoever. And they've never been to a Formula One race, and now they're a steward. Right. And I think that that shift, where we now have some... We, we have drivers, drivers who come in and do and this. Things like that. I think that's been a big change and a big help. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to get down to one step further. I'm not expecting a steward to be... I'm, I'm going to do 21 races as a steward, but commit to a third of them but have that pool of people that says, these are the only ones that can do the stewarding, but you can't have John and Mark and Carlo always be the same three stewarding together. You got to rotate them in and out so that the mix of three keeps changing so that you get diversity, but you get, you get consistency with diversity. Mm -hmm. I want it all. Okay. Okay, so now that we've solved stewarding problems, what other problems of Formula One can we solve? Well, you know, it turns out that here we are, coming towards the end of June, and already we've hit silly season. We've already got silly season. Already? Already. So initially it was... The rumors over around Williams and Robert Kubica, because unfortunately Robert has not been lighting the world on fire. I don't think he's even been a dim match. And I honestly, I would love to say that 
I can't tell whether it's the car or Robert. But George is getting... But George Russell's apparently been impressing a whole lot of people in his crappy Williams. Yeah. Sorry. Williams, I'm pulling for you guys, but no. Make it easier for me to pull for you, please. Yeah. Um, So there are rumors that there may be a change coming over at Williams at some point. But this weekend, at the French Grand Prix, at their home Grand Prix, Renault and Cyril Abitbull has already said that they are that they need to look at the options beyond extending Nico Hulkenberg's contract as he reviews his driver options for 2020. Nico's going to be gone. I I've been predicting Nico leaving F1 for several years. One, he's too tall. Two, um, I mean, he's a great driver. Don't get me wrong. He's actually good driver but he's never gotten to that point where he's excelled enough to be able to move up into the top teams and now he's just sitting in a seat in a mid-tier team and i think think, right. i think at the time he was what reno needed Mm -hmm. as much as jolian palmer might disagree i think at the time he was what reno needed but at this point yeah, they they may need to look. At, I mean, they've got Daniel Ricardo, right? And Daniel, they've got another year at a minimum with Daniel. Um, he, I'm sorry, he he's a much stronger driver than Nico Hulkenberg. So then the question is, who takes that spot? So what we know, all we know, is that. There was a verbal agreement in place last year before Daniel Ricciardo was signed for Esteban Ocon to make the move over to Renault. Interesting. And Toto Wolf was very upset over the fact that um, Cyril reneged on that deal. It was, it was as Toto calls it, a gentleman's agreement. Mm. And that Cyril reneged on that deal has Toto very upset. But, French driver, French team. Yeah. So, I, I you know, Toto has said that um, in order for him to consider a another gentleman's agreement with Cyril, Cyril must again become a gentleman. <laughs> Toto is pissed. We need to remember that Cyril is French. Yeah. I I think, yeah, Esteban may be the leading candidate for that seat, but I suspect it's going to cost more this year than it would last year. Oh, you think? Yeah. I think there's going to be a gentleman's agreement uh, penalty part. Yeah. So, and I'm mentioning this now only because of the story that comes after it, even though it seems a little out of place. But we know that... that Haas did not have a great weekend this weekend. No, they have a great weekend last weekend either, or, or in Montreal either, um, which um, the radio call from Gunther Steiner over to Kevin Magnuson to shut up. Yeah, even Kevin Magnuson has come out and said, "Yeah, Gunther was right to do that." <laughs> I, I was kind of out of line there. The guys really worked hard, and there, there was an explanation as to what happened and why Kevin was so upset. So what the team had decided to do, since they had to rebuild his car anyway, and he was starting from the pits, was they figured, you know what, let's try. They went with a completely different setup on the car. They figured, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, that. And but <laughs> but that was the idea of if, if we're already starting from the back, we might as well go out on a limb and see what what happens. And they went off with this this setup that didn't pay out. And Magnuson was pissed. It, it, it led to a really bad race. But at the end of the day, as Gunther reminded him, the team busted their butt to get him out on the track after he had such a massive crash. Mm-hmm. And he, even he said that, yeah, it was hard out there. It was bad, and, and the setup was bad. But the team busted their butt, and I, 
I had no right to bring them down on this. So, but Gunther then turned around and said, this week, this weekend in France, was the team's worst weekend since they came into F1. Whoa. That bad. And they still don't understand what's going on here. They don't understand. They've been saying that it's the tires. That they can't figure out how to turn the tires on. And, and it's this change in the construction that's causing them the problems. And that's what it is. However, and this is why I, why I put it there. Because Roman Grosjean came out and said, you know what? It's time for the team to stop blaming the tires. And to start blaming themselves. Oh, really? So my first thought when I read this was, is Roman working on a resume? <laughs> you know, because I don't think that this is a career-enhancing maneuver right here. But you know, Roman is a French driver. He is, and I don't remember what his contract is, and that is that possibility. But the thing is. As much as, yes, we have seen Roman do very well in the past for Haas. And he is no longer the first lap nutcase that, he, that Mark Webber declared him to be back in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was 12, not 13. Um, he's not that. But when you're looking at a choice between Roman Grosjean and the issues that he, he has had for the last 18 months, arrest him on Ocon. Yes, I get that you pissed off Total Wolf, and Total Wolf is Esteban's mar- uh, manager. Who are you more likely to go with? Yeah, I'd go that, with Ocon That's the too. thing. I mean, if, you, if, if you're looking at French driver to French driver... I'd go with Ocon too. That, that's the thing. I understand. I mean, I get Roman's frustrations. And yes, the team has not performed as well as we have seen them in the past. And if anything, the way we've seen the team perform, I would have expected this in year one, not in year three. I know. Or year four. I think we're in year four now with them. Yeah, they have to be. They got money last year. Yeah. I, I would expect them to be a bit further along. And it, it does. It, it feels in many respects like the team has taken a step backwards this year. It really does. I have to agree with you there. And it's not just because of rich energy. No. Which, um, if you have not noticed, the logos have been removed from the car. Mm -hmm. The logos are not coming back on the car. It still says rich energy. They are still the rich energy Haas team. Um, But in terms of the logos, they have pretty resoundingly lost that court battle. Wow. It is not their logo. Now, we still don't know where the hell they're getting their money from. Um... The reviews that I've heard around the drink, because uh, the good folks at Jalopnik have made it their mission to suss out just who the hell Rich Energy is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not particularly impressive, and they don't really like the drink. Excellent. Um, supposedly, well, not supposedly, Rich Energy had a presence at the Indy 500. It may have been just a flat of cans of the drink sitting at a table that was unmanned oh my yeah maybe not with any banners so that was their presence that was their presence okay also um if you haven't noticed that has disappeared from the cars logo wise is the mission winnow logos uh from the ferraris okay now they disappeared in canada because there was still concerns for regulatory things. They were not brought back um, for France, and it is now sounding like they may not come back at all because it seems that despite the fact that the Mission Winnow branding is supposed to be a quote-unquote, and I'm going with Philip Morris's words, not mine, safer alternative to enjoying smoking, Mm. Not all of the regulatory bodies that govern such things agree with that position. Oh. And as such, in order to, like what happened in Australia, not fall afoul of said regulatory bodies who have not 
fully issued a ruling on this, they're going to remove them from the cars. And Ducati, which also runs, had been running with the, the logos, that's being removed as well. Now, that said, McLaren and their sponsorship with British American Tobacco, that it has not come off the cars. Interesting. And British American Tobacco says that they will continue to keep that unless somebody tells them to pull them off. Okay. And that is, I believe, Hype is their logo for their smokeless product. Okay. I think, I think that's the, the bat logos is uh, the Hype stuff. Interesting. Um, in case you were wondering, because I know you're concerned about this, um, McLaren has stated that uh, Fernando Alonso is no longer part of their testing plans for 2019. Do you know something? I could not have cared less. Okay. I mean, he did uh, come out and... Uh, drive in the Pirelli tire test for the team in Bahrain earlier this year. Uh, but McLaren has announced that uh, Sergei Sorokin is stepping into a testing role for them. But Fernando's other commitments means that he is no longer available to assist them. Okay. Now, I don't know what these commitments are because the WE series has ended and he has announced that he is not going to be driving in WEC in the next season. And since the Indy 500 event self-destructed so spectacularly, it's not like he's got a commitment to IndyCar. So what exactly Fernando's doing that he's not available? I, I don't know. He's got to run his cart track in Spain. His cat. His cat. Remember, his very cat. Important his cat missed him. We, we've heard about this. He, he has a cat, and his cat, it, it must be the cat. He's spending more time with his cat. It's it, family commitments, obviously. Mm. So where things stand right now in terms of the championship, and normally we don't po point this out, but we're early enough that I think it, the way the season has shaken out, I think it's worth mentioning, Lewis Hamilton is... 36 points ahead of Valtteri Bottas. Yep. Unless something fairly dramatic happens at this point, Mercedes has got the constructors. Yes. And the fact that we're in June, and you can say pretty comfortably that Mercedes has the constructors, that's kind of shocking. I mean, honestly, even in Bahrain, if you if, if somebody had turned around and said, yeah, Mercedes is just, they're going to win after win after win after win. Nobody's going to have a win. We'd have been like, yeah, you're nuts. Yeah. Ferrari's going to, I mean, look at Leclerc, man. This Look at what happened with Leclerc. If that car hadn't blown up, he would have won a race. He's going to be pushed. And we haven't seen it. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I don't know why it's so bad, but. I, I, I really and, and we've seen the rumors pop up after Canada and I really gotta wonder what Sebastian's future is gonna be is he gonna be around for 20 is he gonna finish out his contract yeah, I gotta wonder I am with you I don't I don't know maybe that's what's gonna happen he's gonna go to Renault he's gonna retire Nico Hulkenberg will go to Ferrari not <laughs> I don't see and that. They will bring Nico Hulkenberg in to be the number two to Charles Clark. <laughs> Charles Clark. As, as nobody but that idiot announcer in Chicago calls him. Yes. As, as no one actually calls him. And on that note, we will call it a show. Okay, cool. Let's go to the videotape. Here we go. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? 
good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.